I'm Sean Graham, and what's old as news this week is the National Film Board. Yes, the venerable institution of Canadian filmmaking founded in the spring of 1939. And as somebody who has studied the CBC in the same era, the National Film Board is a wonderful counter to the CBC, which at the time was only working in audio as television had not become commercially available yet. So the National Film Board comes in and you go from a publicly funded audio production that was available nationally with some exceptions in the coverage to film. And of course, film by 1939 was readily available, certainly in all urban centers. And the federal government jumps in to this media with great fervor through the National Film Board. And in the 80 years since, the NFB, in a lot of ways, has come to represent the imagination of what Canada is, certainly visually, whereas the CBC might have tried to, and maybe in some cases was successful in defining the country in a certain intellectual way, in a cultural way, certainly in a linguistic way. The National Film Board does so visually. One of the ways it does this is through nature and nature documentaries, the way in which people visualize Canada's landscape, a lot of that does get influenced by the National Film Board. And you don't have to just take my word for this, as it is the subject of a new book by Michael Clemens entitled Screening Nature and Nation, the Environmental Documentaries of the National Film Board, 1939 to 1974, in which he looks at some of these documentaries and shows how they shaped perceptions of the environment, and how the National Film Board's internal changes, the way it shifts through those early years, influences what people saw on screen. And he talks about really significant films from the 1960s, like Cree Hunters of the Mysticini and Death of a Legend, which were asking very provocative questions about the way in which the federal government was presenting nature the way in which the federal government viewed the natural landscape of Canada, which is very different from the way in which the National Film Board operated, certainly for its first six years during the Second World War. So it's a wonderful examination, not only the films themselves, but also of the internal workings of a very important national cultural institution that is Still in operation today, if you look at its most recent annual plan, net expenditures of nearly $70 million for the 2021-2022 fiscal year. So the National Film Board is still very much a prominent player within Canadian filmmaking. And this book offers some wonderful context to that and to its influence, not only in time, but the way in which it has shaped the way in which we contemporarily view Canadian landscapes and in that way, to a certain extent, what it means to live in this country. So I was very excited to have the chance to talk to Michael about these topics and the book. So without any further ado, let's get right into that conversation. All right. And Michael Clemens joins me now from Hamilton, Ontario. Michael, how are you today? 
I'm doing well, Sean. It's uh, it's a nice bright day here in Hamilton. <laughs> Can't complain. I've got a nice view of the escarpment, which is which is always good. <laughs> Absolutely, it is a beautiful part, underratedly beautiful part of the country there in Hamilton, Ontario. Waterfall capital of the world, so they claim. So they tell me. I don't know if that's actually true. That's not verifiable, but uh, that's what they that's what they claim. I will take it. You know, it's better than the smokestacks and the old jokes about Hamilton having to roll up your windows uh, once you right, came across exactly. that bridge. So uh, we are here to talk about screening nature and nation that looks at environmental documentaries of the National Film Board. So let's get right into it and uh, talk about a little bit about your background and how you got into looking at the National Film Board as somebody myself who studied the, the CBC. I, of course, am very fascinated by these pseudo public cultural entities that came out around the, the 1930s. So what is that for you? Why did you initially have this attraction to want to study the National Film Board? There are a number of different factors that sort of shaped the research that went into this, my own interest in, in film in general. But also, I'm still of that generation that in high school, you know, every once in a while, somebody would roll in a TV, you know, the old the old tube TVs with the VCR and everybody, you know, quietly shifted in their seat and they could, you know, sort of just relax. And I, I remember, you know, in, in this grade eight or grade nine or something where they showed uh, Don Owen's High Steel which is a wonderful little folksy documentary about a group of Mohawk who are sort of uh, pitched up on these, you know, these skyscrapers working in the steel trade. And I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so I always had a fascination with the NFB. And fast forward a number of years later, doing my PhD, I was always interested in the intersection between nature and culture. And it just seemed, you know, perfectly suited for an inquiry into this wonderful Canadian institution that's not really talked about a lot to really think about how Canada imagines itself. And nature was such a central theme in a lot of the documentaries. Uh, it seemed ripe for exploration. So that was sort of, you know, the general, you know, curiosity. And then while I was mining the, the uh, film archives for the NFB, I came across one of my, favorite films I was rewatching a cry of the wild, which is uh, Bill Mason's documentary about wolves. And, you know, there's this, this one, I've talked about this in other capacities, but there's this wonderful bit where, you know, Mason's sitting beside a fire and he's waiting for these, uh, for these wolves to come by so he can record them. And he's been out there for, for days and he can't find a glimpse of these wolves. And so he's huddled around the fire, the sun is setting and he's in Northern Ontario and it's sort of this very evocative image of Bill Mason sort of turning at every snap of a twig, every noise in the forest, sort of this elusive wolf is 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 out there somewhere, but he's he's not confident of where it is. And he catches a glimpse of it and then it disappears and lopes off into the forest. And it's this wonderfully poetic image, but it also struck me as it, it, it in some way it seemed to be very iconic of Canada's image of itself, right? And I'm not sure where that, you know, I was sort of curious about where that connection came from, you know, that I automatically thought of this as an iconic Canadian image. And I was thinking about sort of the role that nature has played in Canadian culture and how the NFB's kind of facilitated that. So, you know, I was out of 
born out of personal interest in, in the NFB and cinema in general as a way to sort of think about our environment, our place in the world, the natural world, but also in terms of sort of an interest in just what the NFB represents in this, this uh, complicated, but I think pretty cool institution. For me, it's the, it was the CBC, 1930s, really starting in the 1920s, the idea of national radio. And one of the things that comes out of those discussions is reflect Canada back to Canadians. But of course, radio is limited in that it's audio only. So they really focus on a lot of talks and really, frankly, in some cases, talking down to the audience like, you know, you're, you're too dumb to understand exactly what Canada is supposed to be. So let us tell you what that is. And then on top of that, they do a lot of music and other cultural things to try to reflect a vision of Canada back to Canadians. But a part, big part of what a Canadian imagery is, and if you look at just commercials, say, the wild, the nature, lots of trees and rivers, and if you're in Ontario, Northern Ontario, rocks as well. Uh, but, you know, mountain and, and the landscape plays such an important role in the imagery or the imagination that Canadians have of their country. How much of that was at the forefront at the start of the National Film Board, this idea of reflecting a vision of Canada back to Canadians that was centered around what the CBC didn't have, which is the powerful imagery of the landscapes that exist across the country. That's the cool thing about cinema, right? It's such a effective medium in that it, it, it provides the visual component to, to the, the ideologies and the messaging behind the NFB or the CBC um, or the government general. Very early on, the NFB Film Act was very much centered around communicating a very specific circumscribed vision of Canada back to Canadians and, and abroad as well. I mean, there is there is, you know, some some interesting archival material on Canada using it as a sort of way to broadcast itself abroad through documentaries and things like that. Uh, but it was very much centered around how are we reflecting ourselves back to a Canadian population? And I don't know that nature, it could be said that nature was sort of us, it was never verbalized that this was going to be a key ingredient to that message. I think it happened sort of very organically in that, as you were saying, sort of the iconic geographies and landscapes have always been part of Canadian culture, even before the NFP was formed since Confederation. And I just think that over time, it became such a huge part, a huge theme, a genre within the NFB filmmaking that it was very much wrapped into that sort of original uh, mandate of the NFB to project, again, a very clear vision of what it meant to be Canadian. And that vision over time changed. It, it sort of evolved. It was complicated. It was repudiated in a lot of different ways but i think the central premise is that canada is very canadians and canada whatever that term means is very much uh, woven into the fabric of its of its geographies and of its resources now of course it comes across uh, or about at a very interesting time in the 1930s where you do see investments into these sort of public projects, but for the National Film Board in particular, where this book starts, it is in 1939, where you're starting your analysis here. So those initial six years, there's a, a rather big event going on over in Europe and then, of course, in the Pacific as well. So in, in your research here, 
what is the National Film Board doing during those first six years as the Second World War is going on to promote this environmental nature perception of Canada that to a certain extent doesn't necessarily support a lot of the policies going on with the war? It's interesting because very much the NFB was centered around as a war effort. It was part of sort of the larger total mobilization to use every resource possible, including documentary filmmaking as a way to sort of promote the war effort to support both what was happening uh, across the Atlantic and the Pacific, but also specifically how do we sort of rally domestic morale, right, when it starts to flag. And nature, in a lot of ways, if we can call it this, it's conscripted into this larger war effort. And it's very much sort of this utilitarian view of Canada is a massive piece of land. It has a wide spectrum of natural resources that can be used towards this war effort. But at the same time, to utilize those, uh, they have to be exploited in a specific way. At the same time, there are sort of these larger concerns, sort of this instrumentalist view of nature about conservation and, you know, using up these resources at a time of crisis. So a part of this was, A, we need to use these resources and they should be used in a very specific way, whether it's using sort of iron ore deposits to supplement or you know, support the construction of military wares and technologies and things like that. Uh, it's using lumber and timber for a variety of purposes, but it's also how do we protect them as well so we can continue to supply the allied effort. So you have sort of the first inkling or hint in NFB films that nature is a finite or the natural world sort of has these finite resources and that we can't be using them without some sort of consideration of wise use. Uh, but again, it's still very sort of much in sort of that instrumentalist or utilitarian view that nature is meant to be used for the purposes of humankind. And in this case, to support uh, the Second World War. Coming out of the war into the late 40s, into the 1950s, what transition do you see? What What is the National Film Board doing at that point? Obviously, there's a lot of cultural changes going on at that moment. So in the documentaries that you're studying, how is that reflected in the way nature is being presented back to Canadians? The NFB was kind of in this awkward position after the Second World War, where its own utility as a way to, again, boost domestic morale, to broadcast you know world events and things like that came up short right at the end. I mean, there was nothing else to report on, right? So, there, you know, morale was still fairly, was flagging, but the NFB sort of utility for the Canadian government was, was dubious at best. And John Grierson, NFB's founder and first film commissioner, realized that there was also a role for the NFB to play in terms of national education. Right. So using the NFB as, a, as an information tool for domestic audiences on how to recover in the post-war period, uh, reconstruction as a way to think about or to use these films as basically instructional manuals on how to sort of live in a post-war mm -hmm. period. And nature, again, this is sort of the first 
instance where you start to see nature as as a promotional tool, both for immigrants coming to Canada. We have this sort of widespread that's apparently, according to NFB filmmakers, completely empty. We know that's not true, but this is how they're sort of promoting it, but also as a source of national pride, right? And so the language of Canada as a northern nature becomes very prominent in these documentary films and that the the iconic landscapes of Canada become sort of symbolic gestures or icons of Canadianness. So you have a sense of pride for sort of these large vestiges of wilderness that still exist, though in some cases are being threatened. But yeah, so in, in a lot of ways, it becomes a, a tool to promote Canadianness, a specific brand of national identity, which is very much Anglo, uh, very much white-centered. But it's it's also the first time that there is a broader sort of appreciation for the natural world beyond its its natural resources and sort of sublime beauty and all these other things. So that was sort of in the immediate sort of post-war period. Uh, the 1950s, it starts to change. The 1960s, of course, you know, you start to have larger conversations about what it means to be concerned about environmental issues. But I'm sure we'll get into that a little later. I want to get too far ahead. Here, but... Yeah, well, you, you mentioned the idea of, of empty landscapes, and that has been a long criticism of the way Canada's natural world gets presented, that it's just this empty place where nobody is. And of course, that leads to certain issues associated with Canadian colonialism that certainly predate the National Film Board, right? The the railway in its advertising did the same thing, like, look at this empty, natural, untouched by human beings space. And a lot of people have noted that that, of course, eliminates uh, First Nations, Indigenous communities from these conversations. So when the National Film Board in the 50s and, and into the 1960s, because you do note a change in the 1960s, how are the documentaries presenting the empty landscape? And are they conscious of the elimination of Indigenous communities from their presentation of the landscape? The NFB is very much sort of that Western impulse to think of landscapes as sort of an empty, that, that nature in its its most pure form is empty, virginal, that sort of gendered language appears again and again, and completely sort of bereft of civilization. Uh, but that's, that's not the case. But I don't think NFB filmmakers, they, they may have been personally sort of conscious of indigenous peoples who sort of dwelled in these different places that they were filming in, but it really doesn't become part of the filmography until the late sixties and early seventies. In the 1960s in particular, you have a large, a lot of conversation in films like the enduring wilderness about these pristine spaces that need to be protected. And there's very sort of little, in fact, the omission of indigenous peoples that live there is very conspicuous looking back. Right. But, but there's sort of this, this, this dual narrative because at the same time, a lot of films about the Canadian North sort of recognize that people do live in this, this particular landscape, Mm -hmm. this wild landscape, but they're framed in a, in a, in a very different way. They're, they're sort of cast as, these exotic peoples that further sort of enhance this vision of a landscape sort of untouched by human civilization, technology, things like that. So 
in some cases they are present, but they're very much part of the larger sort of exotic maison song of the of, of this sort of wilderness, this Canadian wilderness landscape. That's of course complicated because the idea of the question of indigenous peoples is becoming particularly salient in this people. And so it's not too long after that NFB filmmakers recognize that there are alternative visions of nature that need to be uh, represented in these, these films. And I, I wouldn't sort of call them as sort of decolonizing projects. I think they're very much still of that particular sort of Anglo white centered mold, but there's at least a consciousness of there are other stories that we need to be telling. And maybe we're not necessarily the people that should be telling those stories. The book sort of ends in 1974 with, with Cree Hunters of Mistassini. And it's directed by Boyce Richardson and Tony Ianzello, but they're very much at the forefront of their mind is talking about what is the Cree perception of nature? How does it differ from sort of this uh, very much utilitarian state way of sort of seeing environments and things like this. And it was an attempt, an imperfect attempt to sort of give a voice or a platform to some of the Cree hunters that were living in in the James Bay region. And that their vision of nature was very much different from a lot of the, the stories and narratives about wilderness and environment that were, had been produced by the NFB up until that point. And when you're talking about, too, about the idea of people in the the North and their representation, one of the earliest ones, I would think, and this obviously predates the NFB, is Nanook of the North. And that imagery that that comes out of that film uh, remains strong. It wasn't that long ago that I was out in the winter and somebody made a comment of like, oh, they look like Nanook uh, because they were so bundled up. Right. So, I mean, that that was 100 years ago and uh, that that film. So it's it's still very strong in how people perceive the individual or perceive individuals from the north. But who were those people who for the National Film Board prior to people like Boyce Richardson, who we'll talk about? Who were the people that the NFB was contracting to make these films? Were they full-time NFB employees? Were they filmmakers who were getting NFB funding? Just how did that structure work? And why did it repeatedly, it seems, go to the same type of filmmaker into the 1960s? Yeah, the, the structure is, is it's a bit of both. A lot of them were specific employees of the NFB. So somebody like Evelyn Cherry was a producer of a particular film unit within the NFB. And as her full-time job, uh, she would work in a specific genre producing documentaries of a like kind. Others like Doug Wilkinson sort of, they work for the NFB, but they have their hands in a lot of different kind of areas. They wear many hats and so they come and go, but it seems like they sort of build up a sort of persona of being an expert in particular areas. Doug Wilkinson with the North, Bill Mason, for instance, you know, I talk a lot about Bill Mason, Mason in the book, and he is hired by the NFB at different times because he, again, has become a bit of a, a wilderness expert, and he's somebody that through his own sort of personal knowledge and personal interests is, is hired by the NFB and repeated times to make certain films. Rarely do you see, or rarely the filmmakers that I talk about in this book, though they do exist, sort of have 
an idea and pitch it to the NFB brass and say, no, I want to make a film about this. Usually it's more top down than that. That sort of changes. And that's what's kind of interesting with the 60s and 70s is that you do have filmmakers who are uh, emboldened to make sort of uh, creative decisions about the types of works that they they want. And we can talk a little bit about Larry Gosnell as a perfect example of that. And I, I think that's where sort of the most interesting sort of narratives and films come out of. But for the most part, it's more top down than that. The NFB has a very clear sense of the types of movies that they want to make, documentaries that they want to make and they hire the filmmakers that are sort of best or best suited to make yeah. those types of films or just are available and willing to make right. the, those kinds of yeah. movies. Yeah. Uh, well, how much of that is influenced because we, again, and I, I can lean on the CBC example that in theory, the CBC is independent of the governments and should not be influenced by what the government of the day wants to produce. And for the most part, they do okay in that, in the period that I've, I've studied the CBC. What is the situation with the National Film Board, which is a very similar structure, that it is intended to be an independent body from the government, yet we know that uh, that's not always the case. So does the government of the day have any voice within those offices? Early on, it's very, they're very much present in filmmaking decisions. You have different ministries who are who technically babysit the NFB. It's under their sort of portfolio, and they sort of, you know, you know, they have to sit on it. Some of them are 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 not as happy as others about having to sort of think about this this sort of cultural agency that nobody really knows what to do with. Nobody knows how they're going to fund it. But at the same time, you do have a lot of government sponsors who see this as a easily pipeline to sort of distribute commercials about their various policies and programs. And so they're very present both in the films themselves, government care, government individuals and institutions and agencies are very sort of present in the film's narratives, but also behind the scenes and sort of making editorial decisions about what to include and what not to include. Even after it's filmed, there are sort of, they have, last cut, so to speak, and they are very much conscious about how they're being represented. But at the same time, too, I, I think it's, I think we have to be careful to suggest that it's always top down, and that it's just sort of a voice of propaganda. I think there's a recognition both by NFB staffers and commissioners that uh, film is a powerful medium. This is meant as a social tool, and that can be sort of interpreted in different ways and it's more than just an avenue for government agencies to tell Canadians how to live their lives and so it does start to to shift and government uh, presence starts to dissolve from the types of pictures that are being made and though that they do have some say in you know how much funding is being filtered to certain departments um, i think you have filmmakers who are more willing to challenge the status quo and that the nfb soon becomes sort of they start to back their filmmakers in ways that maybe historically they wouldn't have whatever government sponsor says is what the government sponsor gets that doesn't that's not necessarily the case in in, in the in the, the late 50s and the 1960s so what prompts a lot of that changes? Because again, the, the book highlights this real sea change at the NFB and, and the type of films that it's producing really in the 1960s, 
relative to the First Nations experience, uh, relative to some of the individuals who are producing the films. You just talked about the elimination to a certain degree of some government influence. So what really leads that cultural shift within the NFB to allow for that greater independence, that more recognition of Indigenous communities? Yeah, I I think that there were sort of a number of larger cultural shifts that sort of transcend the NFB and government that are happening. Um, There is, you know, the 1960s is a period of cultural upheaval. I think there is a general sort of social awareness about using journalistic techniques to uh, tell alternate stories, to embrace subjectivity. And, And in some ways, sort of the NFB follows that current. And I think there's sort of a very natural progression to move away from sort of the didactic style of documentary that views the, the, the image that is recorded as objective truth. And it starts to realize that c- cinema, like any other medium, is an inherently subjective. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And so over time, I think the NFB starts to embrace that. But there's also a number of technological changes that, you know, the NFB is sort of spearheading in a lot of ways that they, as a filmmaker, as a filmmaking institution, are really thinking creatively, uh, in some cases, because of a lack of funding, how to make their movies on a two-string budget, uh, how to really use new technologies, whether it's video, whether it's, it's, it's mobile recording techniques, to move away from sort of the editing room and into the environments in which they're filming. And so that sort of enables filmmakers to really sort of move around and be very much present in the the documentary process. But I think that there was also, you know, there's also sort of an ideological acknowledgement that's being made when we say that our voice, our authorship is very much uh, present in a film. And I think that tends to complicate sort of our our visions of the world. Um, and then the NFB sort of really leans into that with the, the development of, of branches and units like Challenge for Change. It really becomes sort of seen as, as a social tool that is less about sort of creating cinema, as we understand it, but rather as an agent of change, of political change. And that by giving uh, certain groups, groups that are underrepresented, the actual filmmaking technology to make movies about themselves can actually have radical effects on the non-cinematic world, the real world, right? So, um, so and, and that very much becomes part of sort of, you know, that I think that's braided into the larger welfare state goals of thinking about certain populations and how do we sort of generate political activism and change within those communities. And so that shift sort of embraces that and in a lot of ways pushes it as well. It's interesting too, because one of the things that I've heard a lot, and it's a a quote that I kind of like, is that there's no statues to committees, right? That uh, particularly in a creative outlet, when you have somebody who's good at what they do, who is creative, let them do it. And they'll usually come up with something better than if it goes through 10 layers of bureaucracy and then the final product is better. So in that vein, you've talked about Boyce Richardson, Phil Mason is in the book, Larry Gosnell, you mentioned earlier. Who are some of these people who are leading this change and how are they able to overcome by this point what is a very established bureaucracy and an established way that the NFB was producing films? 
I think Larry Gosselin is a pers- good person to start with because I think he's sort of one of the key figures in this this transition. Larry Gosnell was actually a graduate of the Ontario Agricultural College at, in Guelph. And he, he graduated, sort of found a job at the NFB, and quickly became the in-house filmmaker on all agricultural subjects in the 1950s. And his early films... Uh, the World Beneath Your Feet and Chemical Conquest are very much sort of pro-Department of Agriculture, that nature is is controllable, we can use science, we can use technologies to manipulate the environment for better yields, healthier agricultural products, and more robust uh, agricultural economy. And he sort of toes the party line. Um, but what's cool is and you can see this in sort of his his personal filmmaking notes. And I had, I had wonderful access um, to all these production notes, as well as sort of personal journals and letters and things like this and research notes. And you see sort of the filmmaker working through some of these some of these problems. And Larry Gostel starts to discover that pesticides, uh, which were considered by many in the agricultural sector as sort of a panacea for agricultural improvement, starts to realize that there's actually sort of this, this countervailing opinion about pesticides and that it may uh, create sort of environmental harm. And then he later, you know, he starts to realize, well, what does this, you know, we're, we're part of a larger ecosystem. So what does this mean for human bodies as well? But you can see him working through this in his notes. So, you know, the first two films are very much sort of pro-science, pro-technology, the hubris of, of, of human beings to be able to control nature and that the Department of Agriculture has everything in control and everything is great. Um, but towards the end, while he's, he's, he's working through chemical conquest, is the first sort of time that he starts to question this. And it doesn't really appear in the documentary. Uh, it's more sort of in his personal notes when he's working on this film, though there is sort of an interesting conclusion that has this very sort of downbeat sort of skepticism. But it's, it's, it's sort of quickly buried or shifted away towards, again, this very sort of more celebratory view of, of agricultural science and things like this. But this sparks in him sort of a more journalistic, investigative approach to his next films, where he's realizing, hey, there's actually something to explore here. This could have severe consequences, both for agricultural environments, but as well as human health. And so in 1961, he produces a documentary called Poison Pests and People. And it's really the first, it's really sort of, it's really interesting because it predates Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. It's really sort of the first very public inquiry into the problems of pesticides and the suggestion that pesticides are actually poisoning uh, our natural environment in really dangerous ways and are affecting human bodies through bioaccumulation. And so, you know, there's, there's this, there's this really interesting point in the production notes for poison pest people where he's going to sort of different vegetable plants across Ontario and Leamington and other places. And he, he's, he's asking sort of these really provocative questions about you claim that these tomatoes are washed before they go into production or before they're uh, created are turned into ketchup and things like this, but clearly that's not the case. And he's getting sort of different, different 
stories and information from different parties who are trying to, I don't know if they're necessarily trying to hide what's going on, but they're, but they're certainly sort of reluctant to admit that, hey, there might actually be residual <laughs> contaminants in our, in our products to the point where, you know, after his, his producer, Don Mulholland is basically, you need to, to back off a little bit because uh, a huge sponsor of NFB films is the department of agriculture. And so slow down a little bit and make sure that you essentially lawyer up that, uh, you know, you're not going to be, and we're not going to be, uh, you know, charged with libel for, for some of the inflammatory things that you seem to be saying. So, you know, so he, he's very careful in how he does it. And the, the documentary itself is, I think, sort of a precursor to a lot of sort of the journalistic filmmaking that we see now, but it's also very sort of directly, uh, confrontational insofar as, you know, he recognizes that there's a larger systemic problem, that humans' tendency to want to control nature just creates more unintended consequences and harm, and that government agents, agencies that suggest otherwise are, are wrong. So the Department of Agriculture and a lot of the other food groups and people that were interviewed sort of disavow themselves from the film, tell the NFB to... to <laughs> Tear it down. Don't show this anywhere. It's rebranded uh, under a different title, and it, it's far less caustic than sort of the original vision. Uh, but Larry Gosnell sort of becomes a bit of a a pariah in the NFB, and actually goes to the CBC to produce some more environmental films that are equally caustic, and he gets in a host of trouble with the, with the CBC and with the government there. But Larry Gosnell, yeah. That's all to say, Larry Gosnell becomes sort of an interesting pivot point in the types of stories that the NFB's, uh, the NFB's producing, in part because uh, Larry Gosnell sort of laid the foundation for this. And then Bill Mason is, is another good example of that, right? Bill Mason uh, is, is hired by the NFB to produce a film for the Canadian Wildlife Service, who are still stinging from... Uh, the bad press that they've received through Farley Mowat and others about their mistreatment of wolves. And so they contact the NFB to say, hey, we want uh, a, a, a overhaul of our, our brand image, more or less. And they hire Bill Mason, but Bill Mason basically turns the film into a critique of, again, government or human intervention in trying to control nature. And so he, in a lot of ways, bites the hand that feeds him, in this case, the CW, or Canadian Wildlife Service. And again, that film has taken on a life of its own, and it becomes sort of one of the, the most famous NFB examples, uh, environmental films that the NFB has produced. What about the audience for these? Uh, one of the things that anyone who has ever studied a cultural production will tell you is it's so hard to figure out what audience is. What is the audience, the size of the audience? What is the audience reaction? It is extraordinarily difficult. Did you get a sense that the audience for these things changed as people like Gosnell and Mason were, were doing this? Uh, did the NFB itself recognize changes in audience or intended audience? Or were they just producing the stuff and essentially like uh, oftentimes happens with some of these government, pseudo-government uh, cultural production, just saying, well, people will watch it because we created it. And uh, that's just really that kind of a weird attitude that oftentimes I've seen uh, in these things. So, so what, what is the idea of audience with all this? 
it's true that audience is such a complicated concept and, and you know the government nfb very much thinks of audience as especially early on as sort of a generic homogenous group right <laughs> that yeah that sort of thing that you know if we build it they'll come if we yeah. film it they'll watch as you were saying right uh, but see so so it's really hard to sort of get a sense of what audience reaction was to those. They aren't sort of NFB films aren't really reviewed in sort of popular film presses or things like that. But the NFB was very much concerned about audience. I mean, a huge part of their film act is about distribution, right? How do we get these films in the hands of, of audiences in this far flung country, right? Who are, yeah geographically disparate right They're so far how do we actually have them yeah. uh, have an opportunity to watch these films so it's, it's at the forefront of their mind and you get some inklings about sort of regional groups uh, reacting responding favorably to the way that they might be represented in certain films others are not but what's really interesting is the nfb comes aware that audiences are not all the same and this is sort of, you know, where Challenge for Change becomes an important part in NFB history. And CFC recognizes that audiences are very different and people come from different communities with different backgrounds, with different views of the world. And if we're going to make films that acknowledge that difference, we really need to, A, uh, create a kind of film system that allows for alternate and regional storytelling. But we also have to provide the means of production to these groups to represent themselves. And so in the same way that, you know, so these audience members in some ways become participants in the film. And that's where you get some interesting sort of archival material about how they're being represented, how they want to change or adjust or alter their representation. But again, it's it's hard to track a lot of these films sort of were, were popular. Death of the Legend, Cry of the Wild, those Bill Mason films are quite popular. Some of the other films are of a popular nature. The information films, I think audiences watched them and were probably indifferent <laughs> to sort of their banal sort of aesthetic and messages. But in the 1960s with Challenge for Change, I think audiences become far more interactive with the types of films. And that in some cases is criticisms of how they're being represented in others it's it's taking over sort of the means of production well if we're being represented in this way we can make our own films that sort of refute that and i think that Cree hunters of mysticine is actually a good example of that with boyce richardson and tony ianzello's uh film about Cree hunters during sort of a key moment in their history in the james bay region with uh quebec's hydroelectric project which uh, threatens the, the very sort of way of living that they've been accustomed to for for years. And the NFB is very much interested in how audiences are, are responding to these types of films, both within the James Bay Cree area. And it be, it, it's actually a very popular film amongst Cree, and they're sort of inspired in ways that I think are really interesting, whether it's going back to sort of traditional hunting grounds, or it's coalescing into a sort of a, a more united political front to challenge some of the, the province of Quebec's advances on their traditional territories. And it also sort of resonates with, with non-Indigenous audiences as well, who may or may not be sort of aware of what's going on and the problems of sort of these state projects like the hydroelectric uh, dam, dam project. 
you've mentioned a few of the titles, Cree Hunters of Mysticini. Uh, you also mentioned Cry of the Wild. There's also The Death of a Legend. There's a lot of films out there that some of these names people might already be familiar with. And one of the great things about the National Film Board is that I've gone back and watched certain titles from, say, the 1950s, uh, like Gone Curlin, for instance, which is amazing. It's it's 12 minutes or whatever it is, and you should go watch it if you have the chance. But a lot of the stuff is easily accessible. So if people wanted to go and watch any of these documentaries that, that you talk about in the book, what are your recommendations? Uh, what, what are some titles that people should go back and potentially watch to get uh, a really good insight into what was being produced? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, you don't need to read the book, which is probably a poor sales pitch for the book. You can just watch these films, and they're very sort of obvious about sort of the changes over time, right? It's it's seventh grade English class all over again. Exactly. Just rolling that TV. Um, I I, I have a couple of personal favorites, and I think a couple of others that I think are are great watches, because I think the cool thing about what what I'm finding is... In general, I think movie making is both a wonderful reflection of history and what's happening in a particular cultural moment, but at the same time, it also is producing new stories and people are uh, people's ideas of the world are being changed by virtue of watching these things. Um, but it's also just like for the NFB, it's, it's actually a really cool recorder of Canadian history. So on its own, it's sort of an archival material in that it's contemporaneous with what's happening historically in Canada. I would start with um, Windbreaks on the Prairies, which is Evelyn Cherry's um, agricultural film in 1943. It's about the reclamation of the prairies after the Dust Bowl in the 1920s and 1930s. And it's about how farmers are recovering as they're working closely with government officials, of course, these desiccated landscapes, these farms. And while it has a very strong sort of paternalistic governmental message, it's actually just an interesting film for its imagery, but it's, it's, it's quite poetic in the way that she sort of frames her shots. Uh, she has a personal attachment, a personal history associated with the prairies. She grew up in Saskatchewan. So she's her, her sort of personal love and ideas about the West are very present in the film. And so you have sort of this almost auteur vision of the prairies mixed with sort of this governmental logic about uh, how we sort of fix these these environmental problems and how do we sort of create a robust agricultural sector in the West again. So I would start with Windbreaks on the Prairies. It's available on the NFB site. You can Google this. It'll take you to the NFB site or you can watch it on YouTube. The great thing is most of these things aren't very long. So if you're just looking for like a 15 or 20 minute break, you can sort yeah. of just fire up an NFB film like <laughs> I do from time to time. <laughs> Land of the Long Day is is a good sort of primer on Canadian representation of Inuit people. Produced in the 1950s, early 1950s, but 1952. And Doug Wilkinson, the filmmaker, who I think we, we mentioned earlier, goes up to Baffin Island to make this film about Joseph Idlib, who's an in a hunter there. And it's, it's, it's just a fascinating watch. I mean, there is sort of a very, uh, Doug Wilkinson has a, a tremendous grasp of cinematic language. I think that he uh, presents a fascinating, compelling story, but it's also steeped in sort of colonial views of, of Inuit peoples. And again, it sort of casts them 
as as exotic trappings in this this wild landscape. And what's what's important about that is to think about the history in which it's produced, and that there is a, a radical change going on in these environments on a political and social level, in which the government is trying to modernize the north, and that they're heavily involved in relocation projects with Inuit people. But none of that's sort of referenced in this sort of uh, nostalgic primeval lens of Doug Wilkinson. But at the same time, there's also a lot of in, interesting things happening cinematically in those films. And I think that they're, they're worth watching despite sort of their lack of sensitivity towards what's going on with Inuit people. But it's also sort of a precursor to sort of this more liberal, again, sensitivity that Doug Wilkinson becomes a, a good friend of, of Joseph Idlut through the production. And so I would say... Go with Land of the Long Day. That's that's an interesting one. And if you want, you can go back to an earlier film that he wrote, a very famous one, How to Build an Igloo, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have, have seen at some point in their life. I, I really like The Enduring Wilderness. I think that, you know, it's a bit of a dated representation of nature as primeval, as sublime, as empty. But it's a very sort of abstract and almost art house sensibility about how to present civilizing or civilization as a corrupting force in the natural world. And they use jump cuts and match cuts in really interesting ways. They use beautiful cinematography of Christopher Chapman. Um, it's uh, the audio is, is compelling because you have audio that's disassociated from images in really interesting ways and in trying to convey sort of the clatter of, of, of civilization. And it's, 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 again, a sort of an important moment in Canadian history where sort of wilderness preservation and an appreciation for wild spaces as intrinsically valuable beyond sort of the resources that they produce, it becomes sort of a, an important moment in that, that larger public consciousness of wilderness spaces. And then I, I, I think you should watch all of the Bill Mason films that are on the <laughs> NFB. You know, he, he's, he's pretty great. Uh, Paddle to the Sea is probably his most famous. But he has a number of different sort of nature films on the NFB that are all available. But I would go to Cry of the Wild to watch. It's, it's about 72 minutes. So it's a longer NFB film, a longer documentary. And... It's really sort of interesting because Bill Mason, who imagines wolves as a symbol or an icon of the freedom of nature, uh, is wrestling on a, in a very self-conscious way about his own sort of impulses to film them, to document them. In, 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 in the case of the movie, to actually raise a pack of wolves on his property so he can film them. And he sort of wrestles with, with that sort of tragic irony that he has to do this to capture their beauty and their freedom. And it's a very sort of melancholy film. And, and he you know, recognizes his place in the destruction of natural habitats and the killing of wolves insofar as he's sort of reproducing this, this sort of dichotomy between nature and, and human beings. But at the same time also sees film as, as, as a, as a medium to promote and show and demonstrate sort of the, you know, the beauty of nature. Uh, and then I would, I would finish kind of where the book finishes in Cree Hunters of Mississippi, because I do think that it shows 
that there are alternate stories about nature here in this in this in this case the the James Bay Cree and how they imagine the land and how it's sort of woven into their cultural social economic uh, spiritual fabric and that those stories and those worldviews manifest themselves in different ways in films and so those representational strategies are different than you know the the enduring wilderness or uh, land of the long day and that they that film can be a compelling medium to not only tell different stories but also to represent the natural world in ways that are reflective of the community or the individuals that are filming a lot of great titles there and a lot more in the book too. So again, it is Screening Nature and Nation, the environmental documentaries of the National Film Board, 1939 to 1974. Michael, if you want to pick up the copy of the book or just keep tabs on some of the other work you got going on, what's the best way for them to do it? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I don't post as much as I as I should, but um, I have a few things coming out in the next little while. So follow me on Twitter at Michael D. Clemens. And you can pick up my book through Athabasca University Press. It's available there. It's also a OER, an online education resource that can be used free of charge. So uh, you can download a copy of the book. We want people to read it, and it's it's a great resource. So uh, don't feel compelled to buy it. It's also available (laughs) as an OER. Awesome. We will link to that and some of the titles that you mentioned down in the comments uh, or down in the description below your uh, episode, wherever you're listening to this. So uh, you can check all that out down there. So Michael Clemens, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks, Sean, for having me. It was a pleasure just to, to chat more about the NFB. So there you have it, my conversation with Michael Clemens, and I thank him for his time again. Screening Nature and Nation, the environmental documentaries of the National Film Board, 1939 to 1979. And with that, let's get right to today's historical headline of the week, which this week is going to be a little newer than some of the other ones we have done so far on the show. This one's coming from just last month, December 8th, 2022, really caught my eye and I wanted to include it because I really liked this story by Martin Morrow in the Globe and Mail as it is an obituary of Gudrun Parker, who was a documentary filmmaker for the National Film Board in the 1940s and the 1950s, really challenged a lot of the standard operations of the National Film Board, what was presented, particularly around gender roles. Parker comes to the NFB in the era of John Grierson and makes these films that are so different and really stand in contrast to a lot of what else was being done by the NFB. Before They Are Six was one that is credited as being so counter to the propaganda wartime films that the NFB was putting out. She also makes Listen to the Prairies in 1945, which explores Winnipeg's music festival. And instead of the typical wartime propaganda that the NFB was producing at the time, it's very pastoral. There's images of young people hanging out to wheat fields, very serene, which is so different from a lot of what was being put out. And she stands out as somebody who brought character to the National Film Board, challenged 
a lot of what was going on in that era. And as Martin Morrow says in this obituary, defines the NFB signature style. So it's, it's really just a wonderful piece. I know so far in this, we've tried to do older pieces, but I really liked this obituary for Gudrun Parker, who passed away in November at the age of 102. And that's a run that I think everybody would sign up for uh, to make it to 102 and have such a, a dramatic influence on a very important cultural institution in this country. So we will link to this in the show notes below. I really encourage you to check it out. Not only is it the story, obviously, of Gudrun Parker, but it really is the story of the National Film Board in the 1940s and 1950s. Just a wonderful piece by Martin Morrow in the Globe and Mail. Again, today's historical headline of the week, iconic documentarian Gudrun Parker helped define NFB's signature style. And with that, I will say thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show to keep us growing here in 2023. I hope you all had a wonderful, safe, and happy new year. I'm very excited about some of the stuff that we got coming for you in the next few weeks. Some of it already recorded, some of it that we have scheduled. This should be a nice run here in the winter of 2023 to get you through the cold weather with some wonderful history conversations. And if you want to let me know what you would like to hear on the show, what's old is news at gmail.com. So thank you, everybody. We'll be back with you again next week for more What's Old is News. <laughs>